Today on Blue 58, Packers fans have a lot of questions after the Packers' Week 2 loss to the Falcons. Is Joe Barry really to blame for the Packers' struggles? What are the Packers' options beyond A.J. Dillon? Is Darnell Savage playing better? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. We have a lot of questions that I want to cover today from a bunch of different listeners, both in our Discord server and via email, a couple of them. Great stuff to talk about. But first, four final thoughts about the Packers' Week 2 loss, three of them having to do with personnel deployment. The first one is a sad one for me, and really the second one too. The Josiah DeGuara dream, I think, is basically dead at this point, at least judging by how he's been used through the first two weeks in Green Bay. You can We can go back and forth over whether or not he was a good draft pick, I think maybe picking a player like that in the top 100 is a bit of a, a stretch. I think that was the general consensus at the time, and I think it's kind of only become more so. But I always had high hopes for him. Unfortunately, it looks like his role in the offense is basically where it's going to be right now, and it's a small role. He's been under 40% of snaps on offense each of the first two weeks. He's played 38 total snaps on offense, 19 in each game. He's played 34 snaps on special teams. And unfortunately, it looks like this is just who he is going to be at this point, a part-time, fairly small-time player who's going to play a lot on special teams too. But if you're looking for a silver lining, you could just point out that the personnel was pretty different at tight end in Week 2 than it was in Week 1, just generally speaking. In Week 2, Luke Musgrave played a lot. DeGuara played a medium amount. But Ben Sims and Tucker Craft barely played at all. They played five snaps and two snaps respectively after, I think, some rough pass or rough run blocking in week one. And if you're not going to run block for Matt LaFleur, you are not going to have a role on the field. And that seems to be where Sims and Tucker Craft ended up in week two because there were a couple rough outings for them in week one, and it reflects in their snap counts for week two. On defense, Darnell Savage and Rudy Ford are your safeties. There may be hopes that the Packers do something else or go in a different direction, but both of those guys are playing heavy, heavy snaps, and both of them hit 100% participation in Week 2. And I get the sense this is how it's going to be until there's an injury or until one of the two of them just plays so bad that they've got to make a move and go in a different direction. They've got the job until things really go sideways at some point. And I think just given the state of that room, that's a fair way to do it. I think you could ask... What then is a guy like Zane Anderson doing on this roster? Because he does basically the same things as Dallin Levitt. So if he's not going to play on defense and you're just going to have a guy who's redundant to Dallin Levitt, why have him on the roster at all? I don't have an answer to that. Perhaps the Packers do and they just aren't telling. But in any case, these seem like the safeties that we're going to live with for right now. I would eventually like to see if, if Anthony Johnson could offer anything a little bit different, but he's been inactive through two weeks. We will have to wait and see. In any case, this is the group that you've got for right now. Finally, a note on fourth quarter collapses. I think there's been a popular, well, maybe not so much on this podcast, but the desire to compare Jordan Love and the 2023 Packers to Aaron Rodgers and the 2008 Packers, well, it's understandable. That was Aaron Rodgers' first year as a starter. This is Jordan Love's first year as a starter. And people have been quick to say, well, there was growing pains then, there are growing pains now. 
especially when it comes to things like fourth quarter collapses, because I think there's this narrative that that's something that happened a lot to the 2008 Packers. It kind of is, but not really. Did some research today, published a piece at acmepackingcompany.com about this. What really was the story as far as the Packers and fourth quarter collapses? When I talk about that, what I mean is that the Packers took a lead into the fourth quarter and then lost it down the stretch. That is something that really didn't happen to the 2008 Packers a whole lot, especially not in the same way as it did to the Packers on Sunday. The Packers Sunday lost a double-digit lead, which they held entering the fourth quarter, ended up losing by one point. The Packers in 2008 actually never surrendered a double-digit lead heading into the fourth quarter. In fact, they never held one going into the fourth quarter in a game they ended up losing. They lost um, a couple of leads that were, I think, six points, four points, and three points heading into the fourth quarter. Uh, But in those three games, um, we never really saw a situation like we did with with the Packers on Sunday. And I can tell you exactly what happened in those three games that the Packers lost where they were leading going into the fourth quarter. The first game was against the Vikings. Uh, I think it was week 10 uh, against the Minnesota Vikings on the road in Minnesota, and the Packers went into the fourth quarter with a lead. The The Vikings rallied and ended up taking the lead late, but the Packers drove down, were in position to kick a 52-yard game-winning field goal, and Mason Crosby just flat-out missed it. The other time was against the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars uh, about a month later, um, when the Packers were leading by four points, by by six points going into the fourth quarter, thirteen to seven, um, they ended up uh, the the Jaguars ended up having two long touchdown drives in that game. The Packers just couldn't keep pace with them, so that was a, a legitimate fourth quarter collapse. In the final game, it came against the uh, the Chicago Bears. The Packers were up going into the fourth quarter, and actually had a chance to win at the end of regulation. Uh, the Bears tied up the game. Uh, but the Packers had the ball last and drove down and were in a chance or in a position to kick a relatively short game-winning field goal. Had the ball on the Bears' 20-yard line, and the the field goal attempt was blocked. The Bears got the ball and went down and scored on the first drive of overtime, and that was it. 20-17, to 17, the final score, the Bears beat the Packers. Now, I say this not to say, well, the Packers in 2008 were actually much better than the Packers are here in 2023, or Jordan Love is is not as good as Aaron Rodgers in, in 2023 or 2008 or whatever. Just to point out that you can lose games differently and that different teams basically are different. We don't always have to do the comparison thing because chances are the comparisons aren't all that accurate and you really have to be careful with narrative type stuff. Speaking of narrative type stuff, We've got a couple that I think are emerging so far in this 2023 season. We've talked a lot so far about A.J. Dillon. We've talked a lot about Joe Barry, and we're going to answer some questions about both of those guys here in this episode because he is on a lot of people's minds. Two questions to start off about A.J. Dillon right away. Uh, One comes from Tyrannus. The second one comes from Old Packers Fan. So first from Tyrannus in our Discord server. If Dylan has shown he's inadequate this season, should we sign a free agent to do his job, such as Leonard Fournette? Or what does college talent look like for next year's draft, since I'm assuming we'll revamp our running back room due to Jones' cost and Dylan's ineffectiveness? Next question again from old Packers fan goes a little something like this. Did Dylan's struggles as running back one impact his future with the Packers and maybe the NFL? Do the Packers need a new RB2 to augment Jones? So let's answer the short-term question here. So kind of going short to medium to long-term. Short-term, the Packers are probably just going to sit with A.J. Dillon for right now. 
uh, there really isn't a lot that you can do outside of guys that are that are already in Green Bay. There is one option that we'll talk about here in a second, but I, I don't think there's a lot that the Packers can really do as far as bringing in new bodies that are really going to change things up a whole lot at running back. The guys that are free agents at this point are free agents for a reason. Um, they've already been given an, an extensive look either in the NFL or in a team yet this season. I, I just don't think that there's anybody who's really going to be a meaningful change over A.J. Dillon that hasn't gotten a look already. As to Dillon's future with the Packers, I think his his future is basically sealed regardless because I think the Packers are looking to revamp their running back room, as as both of our questioners have asked here. And I don't think they're looking to jump right into another expensive running back contract if they don't have to. They've still got to figure out what they want to do with Aaron Jones' contract next spring. As we've said before on this podcast, we are out of the business of predicting what's going to happen with Aaron Jones just because it's been, what, now three times that he's proven us wrong in terms of what the Packers are going to do and what he's willing to do. The Packers retained him. The Packers then restructured his deal, and he's still in Green Bay now, heading well, in his age 29 season. So just as far as what's going to happen in the future, we can look at league-wide trends and say that the Packers are probably going to move on, but I would have a hard time predicting anything exactly as, as to what they're going to do, given how they've handled him in the in the recent past. So if they did keep him, it wouldn't be that big of a surprise. I just don't think that they're looking to dump or to jump into a new big time running back contract if they don't have to. Now, we did see that they had some interest in Jonathan Taylor, and Jonathan Taylor isn't going anywhere unless he gets a new contract. So maybe the Packers are interested in doing something like that because you wouldn't trade for a guy like Taylor if you weren't interested in signing him to a contract anyway. So for the right person, maybe they would do it. I just don't think that person is A.J. Dillon. I don't think that this game in particular is going to impact his future with the Packers. I think even if you just look at this game in a vacuum, there's a lot that you can point to that was not A.J. Dillon's fault. Andy Herman of the Pack-A-Day podcast had a a good clip of uh, the third and one run late in the game where Dillon came up short and you... um, the next play was the the Jordan Love botched quarterback sneak. Whoever's fault that ended up being, he took the blame for it. It appeared to be his fault, given that nobody else moved and appeared to be going for a quarterback sneak. So, um, But looking at that play, Dylan does stumble, it looks like. But the left side of the line also gets caved in. Rashid Walker is moving left to right against his will at when Dylan gets the ball. Royce Newman is getting moved backwards. If that run fails and you're A.J. Dillon, I think you could legitimately just say, hey, this was not my fault. So I think there are some mitigating circumstances even in the short term here, though Dillon has not been overall very good. I think just looking at this game makes it hard to to make any definitive statements about his future, but we've got plenty of other ammunition to go on. It just hasn't been great for Dillon now for a while. So if they, they are going to add somebody, it's probably going to be in the draft next year. But there is one option that I think is intriguing uh, right now. Paul Noonan of Acme Packing Company suggested this, was scouring practice squads looking for anybody with any kind of athletic or overall talent upside. Here's one for you. Xavier Valade, currently a member of the New York Jets practice squad, uh, played at Arizona State last year, also played at Wyoming athletic, 
Aaron Jones sized back, 5'11", 204 pounds, 946 relative athletic score, 446 40-yard dash that gives him the speed score of over 100, which is the kind of the threshold that we look at. Also very productive in college, both at Wyoming and at Arizona State. Good in the receiving game, 88 career catches over, I think, 52 career college games. He would have been a tier one back in our draft preview series this spring. But for a little bit of bulk, it looks like he's basically an ideal kind of player. He moves well. He's got pretty good size. If you're looking for something other than the big bruising back, that seems like a pretty good option. And he's a lot younger than a lot of these other free agents out there. He stacks up pretty well with what's worked well for the Packers in the past. I think that something like that, if you could find either either Valaday himself or somebody else, Along those lines, you're you're in pretty good shape. Flipping over to defense, QHM asks, is Darnell Savage playing better? Because it feels like Savage is playing better. Generally speaking, I'm right there with you. I think just gut feeling, it does seem like Darnell Savage is playing better. Now, he did give up the big completion on the third and three. Uh, in the Falcons game that helped set up, I, I think it was the go-ahead score or whatever score the, the Desmond Ritter, um, no, it wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been the, the go-ahead score. It would have been the Desmond Ritter touchdown that pulled them within two points that allowed them to go ahead with the field goal. In any case, third and three, big completion down the middle. Outside of that, I would say two games in, Darnell Savage is looking better. To the extent that I trust things like pro football focus grades, his grades are up across the board. Uh, just about every category, he is grading out better through two games than he did through all of last season last year. Most importantly, he is tackling at a career best rate. He's got a missed tackle rate of just 10% so far this year. That is a career best. Certainly not like outstanding numbers, but for Darnell Savage, that's pretty darn good. Most seasons, he's up in like the 17, 18% rate. Also worth noting, he is playing less in the slot this year than he did at in any other year in his career to date. Just 12% of his snaps so far this year have come in the slot. That is a career low by a fairly wide margin. 67% of his snaps have come from a deep safety look, a free safety sort of position, almost exactly the same as where he was in 2021, where I think people generally agree the Packers defense was much better than it was this year or even last year. Savage's best seasons were 2019 and 2020. Just for comparison, he played 47 and 49% of his snaps deep in those two years. His responsibilities may have been a little bit different. Generally speaking, I think at this point in his career, it's probably best for Darnell Savage to just stay deep, to use the speed that he still does have, to kind of range sideline to sideline as a, as a deep safety. And that appears to be what the Packers are doing with him so far this year, and he is playing better. We just have to get to that next step and, and bring in some more plays on the ball, passes defensed, interceptions, stuff like that. But baby steps, steps in the right direction so far this year for Darnell Savage. A couple questions on defense, uh, on Joe Barry in particular. First one comes from Serb Packer. Are we as an organization already belated in terms of committing to resolving the defensive coordinator position? Sunday, it was clear that they would attack the Packers by running. But it was as if we were not ready to respond, and it's not the first time. Too many times uh, where it's happened where we're surprised by the obvious. Is keeping Barry going to cost us another season? How much is Matt LaFleur's fault? 
The last part of that question I think is really interesting. How much of this is Matt LaFleur's fault? On the one hand, he has stuck with Barry. On the other hand, Joe Barry was not Matt LaFleur's first choice. Remember, after he and Mike Pettin parted ways, the job was offered first to Jim Leonard. And after he turned it down, he went back to Joe Barry, kind of had another round of interviews. Ultimately, Joe Barry is the guy. If Matt LaFleur had his druthers, it would not be Joe Barry as the defensive coordinator, which is something that we've pointed out repeatedly over the years that, yeah, as, as frustrating as Joe Barry is, remember, he wasn't even Matt LaFleur's first choice for the job. That said, I think we are past the point where you can really circle back to that kind of thing is, is absolving Matt LaFleur in any kind of way now because we are into year three of Joe Barry. If you're looking at, at this as costing the Packers another season, that one's a tough one for me because I don't know what the Packers really are expecting internally this year anyway. I think looking more ahead to 2024, um, maybe they're looking at bringing a new guy in because if the the Packers' three-year contract cycle um, holds for Joe Barry, this is going to be the last year of his contract anyway, so they may have a, an opening heading into next year anyway. In terms of making the change, though, I'm not really sure how differently things could have played out. You did have Jim Leonard sitting around there this offseason available to coach. It doesn't, it's not clear if the Packers were interested in making a change anyway or if they just want to play things out with Joe Barry because they know that this year is kind of going to be a, a punt of a year anyway. I'm not sure I buy that. Um, I think if you're looking to build for the future, why not just start building right now and try to get a guy in here that you really like? Vic Fangio was also floating around out there this offseason. If you're looking to build for 2024 and beyond, why not have a guy like that come in and implement his system? On Fangio, though, I'm not sure he's ever going to be interested in coaching in Green Bay anyway. It's a small historical footnote, but careful observers of the Packers will know that Vic Fangio was Mike McCarthy's first choice to replace Dom Capers in the 2018 offseason. And he turned down the Packers because of his respect for Dom Capers and the fact that he didn't want to coach for a team that had fired his friend and mentor. They have deep connections going back to the mid and early 1990s. Uh, He just didn't want to coach for a team that had fired his friend. Um, So I don't know if that's still true or if, if there was ever a chance where he would have been interested in coaching in Green Bay. But if you're looking to build for the future, I don't know why you wouldn't go ahead and and get the defensive coordinator you want in here long term right now. I'm not sure if if what Matt LaFleur really wants from his defensive coordinator at this point anyway. It does seem like he is openly frustrated with Joe Barry, but I don't know if I would even say that they're late, but they they have committed to to sticking with Joe Barry for better or for worse. And and just here we are. So I think the real question as to what the Packers are going to do and if they're if they're really crazy about Joe Barry, in perhaps in more ways than one, is going to come this offseason. If the Packers re-up with Joe Barry, if they go in a different direction, and if they go in a different direction, what direction do they go? And that is the real question. Kind of related to this Joe Barry question, Nick writes in via email and asks, what should we realistically expect from our defense when our offense can't sustain a drive and the opposing team just dominates time of possession. 
It seems like fans have unrealistic expectations just because we have so many first-round picks on the defense. This, I think, is an insightful question here, and it kind of talks about the um, complementary nature of football that we alluded to in the post-game podcast. Because as disappointing as the defense was on Sunday, what did the Packers' offense do in the fourth quarter? Three and out, three and out, four and out. Now, the defense did give up, what was it, 13 points in the fourth quarter, which allowed the Falcons to come back and, and win that game. We can't get around the fa- that fact. The, the Packers' defense allowed that to happen, and the Packers lost as a result. But the Packers' offense didn't help them at all. At all. They, as, as we said after the game, the ball went forward on only three of the Packers' 10 fourth-quarter offensive snaps. Three of ten where the ball moved forward at all. None of them were passing plays. And if you get two, three more completions in that quarter, it probably doesn't matter how badly your defense is playing because the Falcons just aren't going to have enough time to get the ball down the field the way that they want the ball to move. So I don't know if it's super realistic to just expect the Packers defense to pitch a shutout for that entire quarter or hold the Falcons to 10 points instead of 13 points when the offense isn't moving the ball at all. I would also point out that defensive expectations are kind of unrealistic at almost every level in 2023. What even is a good defense in 23? Well, you could say the New Orleans Saints, who have held teams under 20 points for 10 consecutive games now, that's that's pretty good. Uh, but I don't know what a good defense is supposed to do sometimes, given the way that offenses run, given the way that the entire penalty structure is set up to hurt the defense and help the offense. You could fairly point out that expecting you know your defense not to give up 200 and some yards on the ground is a fair expectation, and I think you'd have a point there. I think it's fair to say that the Packers' defense should be better, but complementary football makes it hard, as Nick points out. I would also point out that this is not all on Joe Barry either. Justice Mosqueda of Acme Packing Company did a fairly extensive thread on Twitter or X or whatever you call it yesterday or today. How does time work? I don't know. On on Monday, um, just pointing out all the execution failures that popped up throughout the course of the game. Guys falling down. Guys just getting worked physically in coverage. Jair Alexander in particular. Uh, Rashawn Gary getting picked on in the run game because he refuses to set an edge uh, on the backside because he just wants to chase after the ball carry. So defenses know that now and they're just going to run by him. Those are not Joe Barry issues. No one is coaching you to play that way in in any level of football, you should be, you have basic football responsibilities that involve, you know, just making sure that you are fundamentally sound. And if you run out of position or get knocked down or whatever, it doesn't matter how good your coordinator is if you're just doing the wrong thing. Now, their execution problems do relate to coaches to an extent. A coach's job is to get his players to execute, sure, but he's not making guys fall down. He's not making guys get knocked on their butts on a given play. If you're Colby Wooden and you're 280 pounds, like you can do all the things coaching wise correctly, but you're going to get moved by a guy who's 330 pounds more than likely. 
And that is one of the problems that the Packers have on defense. On the first-round picks thing, too, let's just look at those first-round picks from this past, past Sunday on defense. Now, broadly speaking, still very true that the Packers have dumped a ton of their resources into their defense. But if you just look at the way the Packers' defense played Sunday and say, well, they got all these first-round picks, what does that actually mean? Well, Jair Alexander was a first-round pick, and he played pretty bad on Sunday. That is not Joe Barry's fault, unless you want to fault Joe Barry for matching him up against Drake London, the the Falcons' number one receiver. And if you do, okay, that's fine, but do you really want, I mean, that's supposed to be Jair Alexander's job. You could make the case that it should have been Rasul Douglas if you're going to have somebody follow, because that's probably a better physical matchup. But still, Jair is supposed to be the best corner or one of the best corners in the league, and he got beat up on Sunday. Rashawn Gary played 22 snaps. Darnell Savage is not great, but playing better. So there's a first-round pick who's playing well. Eric Stokes didn't play. Quay Walker has problems in the run game. Devontae Wyatt has problems in the run game. And Lucas Van Ness played 18 snaps on Sunday. So of those first-round picks, you've got Rashawn Gary, Eric Stokes, and Lucas Van Ness combining for 40 total snaps. You've got Jair Alexander playing bad. And then you've got Quay Walker and Devontae Wyatt, who are playing better but are still second-year players who have some holes in their game. Okay, you can say, yes, the Packers have thrown a bunch of first-round picks at their defense, but those first-round picks either aren't playing very much or aren't playing well or are still too young to really make a huge difference. Add in a regressing Devondre Campbell, and most of the resources that Joe Barry has been given are just not playing well. Yes, you can say he's been given all these resources, and that's true, But it's also true that most of these guys have kind of gotten off to a slow start this season, or at least weren't very good against the Falcons on Sunday. There's more to it than just saying coordinator bad. I know that we're all trained to say that. I know that we have said it more than enough on this podcast. Joe Barry bad, Joe Barry bad, Joe Barry bad. It's true that he is often an underwhelming defensive coordinator, but there are additional issues related to the Packers' defensive performance here. The Jet Sweep guy asks, if we were to sign Jordan Love to an extension before the end of the year, what would you expect the numbers to look at, even just to guess at approximate annual value? It feels like mid-40s, but I'm not even sure how to ballpark this situation. This is an appropriate question because the Packers tried to do this. Well, they didn't try to do this. They went ahead and did this when um, Aaron Rodgers was in his first year as the Packers starter in 2008. They signed him to an extension before the end of the 2008 season, not for like top of market money, but for a healthy raise. And I couldn't find, uh, because the the data only goes back so far on this, I might have to do a little bit more digging to see if I can find it. But the, he did not end up getting top of market deal, a top of market deal when he signed his 2008 extension. So what we're looking for, if we're looking for a like comparable sort of deal, somebody who's not resetting the market, but is still getting a healthy raise from where he was at previously. And Daniel Jones of the New York Giants feels like a pretty good starting point as far as that discussion goes. He signed a four-year, $160 million extension this spring, which makes him, at least by approximate annual value, according to SpotTrack, at least, People's numbers vary a little bit. That makes him the 10th highest paid quarterback in the NFL right now in terms of annual value. Tied for 10th, in fact, with uh, Dak Prescott and Matthew Stafford. Getting in like that probably 9th to 13th range feels pretty good about it for a guy that, if you're looking to extend him, 
can't justifiably ask for top-of-market stuff because he's not one of the top five quarterbacks in the league right now. But also you need to re-sign him and starting quarterbacks kind of just cost what they cost. I mean, I think Derek Carr is at around $37 million, uh per year on average right now. And for a guy who's definitely in the upper half of starters in the NFL, but not one of the super elite guys, at a certain point, starting quarterbacks just cost what they cost. And if you're committed to extending Jordan Love, that's probably the ballpark where you're going to be looking at. So $40 million seems like a pretty good guess, 40 to 45, if you signed him to you know a, a five-year, what, $200 million deal? Is that what that would be at $40 million per year? That would get him to almost age 30 if you're really committed to Jordan Love. I'd say maybe <laughs> stretch it out a little bit. Really feel certain because um, you've got franchise control with uh, franchise tags and things like that. You can you can always go that route. If things get ugly from there, you can always give a little bit, but I, I would be real sure because the numbers get pretty big. And yeah, starting quarterbacks just cost what they cost, but... Um. Yeah, it's a it's something the Packers are going to have to think about here in the next eighteen months for sure, um, because you you don't want to end up just letting Jordan Love leave for nothing. But what is he actually really fully worth? Uh, it's a it's a very very open question and one we're not going to get resolved here right away. Final question comes from Scott via email. So is David Bakhtiari going to have his knee flare up every time they play on turf? With his ranting this week, it seems interesting that all of a sudden he can't play when coming to a dome. It'll be interesting to watch if this is a trend or truly just a coincidence. I agree. Um, And right now, at least if you believe Matt LaFleur, we are just talking about a coincidence because for all of what David Bakhtiari said about not wanting to play on turf and how the NFL is not not taking care of their players and this, that, and the other thing. Um, it did seem like a mighty big coincidence that just as the Packers are playing on turf, he doesn't want to go this week or can't go this week. Now, if you believe Matt LaFleur, and I say if because I'm not sure we always have great reason to believe any NFL head coach, but specifically Lafleur, when it comes to this thing, because he danced around the question after the game and then gave a completely different answer on Monday. This was just an, an injury. He said his knee flared up. He said he was hurt. He said his knee is injured. I should have pulled the actual audio of it, but he said David Bakhtiari's knee is injured and that's why he couldn't play here in week two. It didn't have anything to do with the Packers playing on turf. To me, that is more concerning than just saying, all right, he's not going to play on turf because you can scheme around him not being available when the Packers play on turf because the Packers aren't going to play on turf again until week 12 when they play in Detroit. And just whether it's turf or not, that would be a game to watch uh, in terms of Bakhtiari playing just because that's going to be a short week. when the The Packers play the Lions twice on Thursdays this year. They play them on Thursday night football a week from this Thursday. Um, which is going to be an- another issue maybe for Bakhtiari, given that the Packers play on Sunday. And if, if they turn around and play again on Thursday, is he going to be able to make the turnaround there? Boy, there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, that It becomes another issue, though, if if you're just playing on short weeks. But if it's just about the turf, you can, you can scheme around that and, and just watch and see 
you know, what's going to happen when, when your turf games are coming up. But if it's not the turf, then you're getting into real issues with David Bakhtiari's availability, which is going to be a big problem. And it basically puts us right back where we were last year. David Bakhtiari didn't play in weeks one or two last year. Week one was on the road in Minnesota. Week two was against the Chicago Bears on, I, I don't know if that was uh, in Chicago or at home, but either way, it was it was in Green Bay. So it was, it was on grass, but it would have been on grass either way. Uh, but then Bakhtiari doesn't play a full game for un, until week eight. He doesn't play a hundred percent of the snaps until week eight, and that is um, on grass, on turf, whatever. He's just not available week in and week out as the Packers worked him into the into the lineup last year. And then remember, last year you had the the kind of will he won't won't he on a weekly basis because he plays against the Buffalo Bills in week six and then in week seven or excuse me he plays against uh the jets in week six then uh in week seven he's just out uh against the the washington commanders then in week eight he plays 66 of 60 snap six snaps 100 percent of the snaps on the road in the cold on turf in buffalo so it's just all over the place you didn't really know what you were going to get from bakhtiari and if that's where we are again this year boy I I don't know. Just pray for Jordan Love, I guess, because you don't really know what the Packers are going to get from their offensive line on a weekly basis, including the guy who, when healthy, is their best pass blocker. It's it's a tough situation for the Packers to be in. It's a tough situation for Bakhtiari to be in, and it should prompt some real questions about what they can do with Bakhtiari throughout the rest of the season. Because I don't even know if you could move him at this point if this is how it's just going to be with his knee for the rest of the season. Would you want to trade for a guy like that, even if he's great when he's healthy? I don't think I would. That's all I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. It's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.